from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Today on Studio 360, we're looking at American dance in a bunch of different flavors, such as the choreographer Donald Byrd. For decades now, he's used dance as a way to illuminate what it means to be black in America. Sometimes his work is gentle. More often, though, his dances are bracing and arresting. And as he approaches his 70th birthday, Donald Byrd still pretty relentlessly uses his art to provoke conversation about fairness and justice and, most of all, about racism. We dispatched reporter Marcy Silma to have some conversations with Donald Byrd and to watch him do what he does. Donald Byrd doesn't sugarcoat his political message. He calls his current artistic season woke, wake up and stay woke. Given the current climate that we live in, we have a responsibility to be awake and we don't have the luxury of going back to sleep because things have changed. You know, we don't get to settle in and go, oh, that's taken care of and now I can just kind of go back to being oblivious. This fall, Bird and his Seattle-based troupe, Spectrum Dance Company, have been touring a work called Rap on Race. Like so much of Bird's art, it combines political commentary with a passion to provide historical context all wrapped up in technically demanding choreography. Sometimes it's like purely in the movement as opposed to some kind of intellectual kind of thing, even though it maybe it come from something intellectual. In this case, a 1970 conversation between the anthropologist Margaret Mead and writer James Baldwin. But some of the preachers told me that I should never give my seat to a white woman. And this gave me a tremendous conflict for a while because somehow standing up for a white woman would have seemed to be an act of servility. I solved this problem very neatly by never sitting down in the subway. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bird as Baldwin. He and the actress who portrays Mead sit on a platform above the stage. Their conversation is interspersed with dance segments performed to Charles Mingus's The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. The dancers punctuate the heated dialogue with sharp kicks and staccato arm punches. Critics use terms like roiling or provocative to describe rap on race. Seattle-based dance writer Sandra Kurtz says that could apply to most of the dances Berg creates. The original admonition in modern dance, American modern dance, was to dance who you are. But Kurt says Bird does more than dance his identity. His pieces express his love and appreciation for other choreographers who helped make him who he is. When I think about his work as a choreographer, it always reminds me of a Venn diagram. He's in the middle of a lot of different things. Yes, I think always and primarily he would identify himself as an African-American choreographer. But it is way more than that. He is not Bill T. Jones. He was not Alvin Ailey. He was not um, B.B. Miller. He's not Kyle Abraham. He's not Ralph Lemon. He's Donald Byrd. He takes elements from all of these different aspects of dance that he experienced as first as a performer and then 
as a member of the community, and he's putting them together. As a boy, Bird played music and performed in school theatrical productions. His passion for dance really goes back to the first time he saw the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. The company performed its signature work, Revelations, set to traditional African-American spirituals. Bird, who grew up in the Jim Crow South, appreciated the music, but he says the songs represented a past he didn't want to acknowledge. I had not said it out loud, but the whole idea of the Negro spirituals, even though I thought they were beautiful, I did not want to hear them because they represented uh, slavery to me. What Alvin Ailey had done was he had transformed the pain of slavery into something that was magnificent and beautiful, just the way the spirituals did, and I understood what they were. At the end of it, the audience was standing up and cheering. I was too. Tears were streaming down my face, and I thought, anything that can make people feel this way, that's what I want to do. Donald Byrd spent most of his childhood in Clearwater, Florida. He felt protected by the black community there. But in 1967, Byrd went north to attend Yale on a scholarship, and moving to New Haven was like a slap in the face. I had never been called the N-word to my face, but I got called the N-word in New Haven by somebody driving by, and they threw a chair at me. Regardless of whether I was academically prepared for it, culturally, I was definitely not prepared. Yale was all male at the time and mostly upper class. Even the other African-American students he met had attended elite prep schools. Bird felt like a fish out of water. He tried to polish his rough edges. He read voraciously. He attended theater, played flute in the college orchestra. After he met a beautiful ballerina, he added dance to that artistic mix. You know, I was fighting against it because it was not manly. That was kind of a message. That's not a manly thing. And then also, my grandmother said to me, why do you want to do that? You have a mind. But by the late 1970s, Byrd dropped out of college and moved to New York to study at the Alvin Ailey School. Despite his admiration for Ailey, Byrd was more drawn to the city's thriving contemporary downtown dance scene. I loved Alvin Ailey. I loved that work. I loved what it was, but I knew it was not for me. That's not how I wanted to dance. One of the reasons was it was not accommodating to my body. He was more comfortable with the cutting-edge choreographers he met downtown. Plus, he'd started to make his own dances. Eventually, Bird founded his own company, Donald Bird the Group. It was a dance laboratory, a place for him to figure out how to infuse social commentary into his art. In 1991, Bird shook critics and audiences with an evening-length piece called The Minstrel Show. He appropriated 19th-century minstrel show format. The dancers performed in blackface and woolly wigs, jangling tambourines. Bird also solicited racist jokes from the audience, and he read them from the stage. It was shocking, it was disturbing, and it was revealing to people. The minstrel show got mixed responses in New York. Bird decided to take it on the road. In San Francisco, people were, like, stunned. You know, because San Francisco is kind of the home of political, the Bay Area of political correctness. People sat through it and they had a hard time. And I actually, I was fearful 
for my life, actually, in some ways, because people had such strong reactions to it. Audiences, black and white, may have balked at the material, but critics loved it. The Minstrel Show won a Bessie Award in 1992. Dance writer Sandra Kurtz. He's not afraid of offending people. Or rather, I think he's not afraid of showing people how they might be offending the world. What I feel like my job is, is to kind of put stuff out there so people or, or asked to talk to be to kind of put their fears aside or to put all of that stuff aside, it will stay there unless it's acknowledged and talked about. And that's why almost 20 years after its debut, Bird revived the minstrel show in Seattle. He was outraged by the high-profile shootings of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. Bird asked his dancers to read from transcripts of George Zimmerman's arraignment in the 2012 Trayvon Martin shooting. I just reported that there was a suspicious person in the neighborhood. Um, the dispatcher, whoever answered the phone, asked me where they went, and I said I wasn't sure. Fausto Rivera, a member of Bird's Seattle troupe for the past five years, danced in the revival. It's one of the shows where you were the most conscious of the energy you're receiving from the audience, which is, which is like a little to none. Because you have to realize that they're like in a state of shock. Rivera says the minstrel show also overwhelmed its performers. It's just just one of the most difficult things I think I've had to do on stage, for sure. That show requires a lot. It requires like your whole your whole person. Because for us, right, for like for the month, two months process that we have to stage it, there's a lot of conversation involved. There's a lot of conversation about all the things about like Donald gives us a day where we just put on the blackface makeup and and we sit with it, right? And we sit with them like, and we sit with each other and we talk about what that feels like and the pain that it holds kind of it, uh, on its own as, as a thing and then also like the reality of it. Go. On a foggy morning, Rivera and fellow dancer Michelle Dooley rehearse a duet in the company's studio, an old bathhouse on the shores of Lake Washington. Bird watches from a folding table, his black framed glasses perched on the end of his nose. Bird's Seattle company spectrum includes 14 dancers. Half are people of color. It's been part of his mission to build a racially diverse professional dance troupe, Bird came to Seattle in 2002. Like so many of his fellow artists, he'd had a hard time raising money in New York after 9-11. Ultimately, he decided to close his company there and head to the West Coast. But Bird's problems in New York actually go back to the mid-1980s. I think it's important to say this. I needed a way to deal with the various kinds of pain that I was in. And I, I was in pain around not having things, material things, like no money, no. Uh, I was in pain around wanting to succeed at what I was doing and that, you know, you have to work to succeed at it. Bird numbed his pain with drugs, marijuana, cocaine, and alcohol. He missed meetings, showed up late for gigs. And then I auditioned for, Robert Wilson was there doing a project that was a part of a larger piece that he was developing for the, the Olympics in Los Angeles. I, so I auditioned for that. I got in, so I was doing that. But of course, I just I screwed that up, too. We had a matinee one day, and I was late for the matinee because I'd been so stoned the night before. I didn't wake up. He'd hit bottom. I was really high when I was doing so high that I couldn't even feel my limbs. And so half the time when I was dancing, I was saying, please, God, don't let me break my neck out here because I couldn't feel anything. 
The critics noticed, and for the first time, they panned his performance. That shook Bird to his core. He checked himself into rehab. His friends covered the cost of six weeks of residential treatment, the first of several stints in rehab. When he got back to New York, his career was in shambles. Nobody would take his calls. It was like nothing. It was really ashes and rubble. Everything had been destroyed. All goodwill, everything. I went to meetings every day. I went every day, sometimes twice a day. I took class every day. Eventually, a few sympathetic choreographers threw work his way, and that's how an old friend from the Ailey School saw him perform. She asked him to come make a dance for the company. Mr. Ailey, that's what Bird called him, would wander into the studio to watch. One day, I was doing something. He turned to me, and he looked at me, and he said, you do such marvelous things. When Mr. Ailey said that to me, I go, maybe I need to start saying I am a choreographer. Ailey hired Bird to make another dance. It was the lifeline he'd needed. This spring, Donald Bird unveils his latest full-length work, Strange Fruit, set to Billie Holiday's classic 1939 song about lynching. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Bird was inspired by a trip to the newly opened National Memorial to Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, a six-acre monument to African Americans who'd been lynched. I was kind of numb when I was there, to be really honest, when I think about it, because I was overwhelmed. The design of the memorial with the slabs would suggest bodies hanging. I mean, just the number of them and the kind of insight that I had or things I started to understand. For white people, I think it's important to understand the level, how much of it that happened, and how it was uh, sanctioned. One of the things that's difficult for, uh, for many white people is to acknowledge the level of brutality that a specific group of people that they are part of is responsible for. A lot of his work is ahead of its time um, in that people aren't always ready to receive it, even though they say, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, I want to make change, I want to move the needle forward. Seattle choreographer Jade Solomon Curtis was a standout performer during her four years dancing with Bird's company. It's not Disney. And he's not going to make it this whimsical way of experiencing the world. He's making it real. Solomon Curtis says while Bird is often hard on audiences, he also can be extremely tough on his dancers. Well, I don't want to paint a picture that all of my experiences at Spectrum were just these beautiful, amazing things because they weren't. Several years ago, Spectrum's board of directors suspended Bird just before a show was scheduled to open. They'd heard reports that he'd verbally abused his production staff. The suspension ignited a rift among board members, but ultimately Bird was reinstated. Nobody's ever discussed this on the record, but rumors continue to swirl, and that irritates Solomon Curtis. It's kind of like family in that I can talk bad about my family, but you better not. 
She acknowledges that Bird pushed dancers hard in rehearsal. He says it was in pursuit of his artistic vision, a drive for perfection that surprised many young dancers. You know, there's a whole generation of people that tell, oh, you're so special. You get a sticker or something for everything you do. Meanwhile, his artistic star was rising beyond the small contemporary dance world. Bird was getting hired for new projects in opera and musical theater. In 2006, Bird was nominated for a Tony Award for his work on the Broadway adaptation of The Color Purple. After five decades of dance making, Donald Byrd is happy for all the awards and opportunities that have come his way. But he says it's the hard times that have taught him the most. When you get knocked down, you just get up. I can't imagine not getting up. I just, I can't imagine it. Donald Byrd is artistic director of the Spectrum Dance Company in Seattle where this spring they'll present a series called The Wokeness Festival. Marcy Silman produced that story. She's a reporter at KUOW in Seattle. Coming up... My curiosity is how high could we fall from and would you still be okay when you hit? I take a lesson from the choreographer Elizabeth Streb in how to become an extreme action hero. Okay. Yeah, you're just going to come down. Careful right means. here. Careful right here. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Okay. Great. Great, Kurt. And spoiler alert. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. I survive. That's next on Studio 360. On this hour of Studio 360, we are looking at dance in a variety of forms. Elizabeth Streb is a choreographer, a MacArthur genius, and a defier of gravity. She's also the author of a book called How to Become an Extreme Action Hero. Hang on, everybody. Nice. He's off. As soon as I read about her and her work, I really wanted to visit to see her in action and talk to her about this ongoing risky war with gravity, which I did at the big Streb performance space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Coming up, Trisha Brown. Hey, dancers, this is Kurt Anderson. This is all the dancers, and uh, just so you know who's running around. Push, keep pushing, keep pushing. Guys. Everyone pay attention because nice it's different. Nice. Keep going. When you're on an airplane and somebody sitting next to you and says, so what do you do for a living? What, do you, <laughs> what, what is your simplest way of answering that question? Go on YouTube, I usually say. Just look up Streb on YouTube. And we, I say we smash into walls, dive through glass, and fall from 30 feet. Nice. So can you give me a, a taste of, of uh, Extreme Action Hero Dumb? Yes, I can. Okay. I would take you into my, my uh, gizmo. We call Good. it a whizzing gizmo. It'll go faster than you can keep up with it. And once it crosses that line, there's nothing you can do. Streb's garage is full of all kinds of gravity-defying contraptions. 
One is a kind of beautiful giant yellow hamster wheel that spins around, propelled by the dancers who are inside it. Do you feel okay about that? I'll do whatever you say. Okay. (laughs) Will you show them how, Cassandra? You know, make sure you're just grabbing on with your two hands. One of the dancers helped me climb inside. And then you hoist yourself up. I like to put my foot on the axle. Yeah. That's it. The key is not to be afraid. I'm letting go. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Okay. I never would have thought that just putting one foot in front of the other could be action heroism. But with 30 feet to fall on either side of me, it's all about putting one foot in front of the other. This is the easy part. This is where you go uphill. Are you, are you okay? Yeah. Kurt, that's fantastic. When I was running in her giant revolving hamster wheel... Great. Great, Kurt. I really started to feel like a kid again, like when I'd climb on my parents' rooftop or the first time I I jumped off the high diving board into the swimming pool, thrilled and scared at the same time. Okay, so what's going to happen now on the way down? Yeah. Both of us have to break. As you come down, because the weight is going forward, you have to push back. After getting off and finding my feet again, the two of us went looking for a quieter place to talk. Okay. Kim, could you throw a stool over here, please? Elizabeth is striking looking. She she dresses all in black. She has short, dark, spiky hair, and she's very skinny and wears these cool yellow glasses. She's like a tough punk, but she has this childlike curiosity. I didn't take dance classes till I was 17. My father, who I, I was adopted very young, and he... Um, excuse me, was an extreme sports enthusiast, like hu- but hunting and fishing and bowling. And he would take me hunting for 10 hours. Where was row. it? Up, up in Rochester, New York, but our cottage was in Point Peninsula, the northern shore of Lake Ontario. And so I learned endurance with him, and I learned you know, how to go on the job with him and build and how to carry water for him for many hours. And I think that a lot of my information about how much is enough came from my early training with this very working class mason. Huh. He didn't treat you like the conventional little girl. No, he didn't treat me like a little girl at all. And you know, that that's a question about like how many genders are there and I think as our society advances, we're getting to understand that there are more than two. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is completely politically incorrect, but I wanted to play cowboys and Indians and I wanted to be the one with the double holsters. I did not play with dolls. I got a motorcycle at 15 and I had my own boat. I went fishing on my own with a, a friend. I made tree houses on my own and that kind of thing. So physical risk and physical robustness were sort of second nature. Yeah, I was, I was curious about yeah. it, almost in a formal way, oddly enough, although I knew nothing about experimental dance when I was growing up in Rochester. But I right. think it, I felt like that same kind of examination of Did form. W- w- was there any arts in the conventional sense in your, in your childhood milieu? Not in my family. They didn't have really very many books. They read the Reader's Digest. I did um, have an early talent as an artist. I could draw. And my mother took me to the Memorial Art Gallery every week from 8 to 13 just so I could train as an artist. And they were, she was very supportive of my interest in um, creativity. So you were drawing and, in a, in a, in a, in a, and being trained to draw and riding motorcycles and building tree houses, kind of pretty much what you do today. It's exactly the same, yes. It really is exactly the same. I, I read in your book that when you were a kid, about 11, you, you burned down your uncle's barn. Yeah, it was my father and my uncle's oh, barn. Oh, how'd that happen? I was playing with matches in the hay 
with a friend to see how big the fire could get before, like how far could the fire go before I would be able to put it out. And I probably made about 25 or 30 small fires, each one being put out after I lit it. In this one episode? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't planning to, I mean, my, I wasn't planning to win. It but wasn't that's an act of arson. Maybe? One no, oh. I mean, not really. But, yeah. uh, but they knew that I had a problem with matches. and. Um, Me too. You too? Uh, what do you think it is about that? that I don't know, but I did. And I, and I did things like uh, spread my mother's perfume on her dressers <laughs> to watch it like <laughs> light in a, in, a, in a wall of flame across the dresser. Did it, did it damage the dresser? Never. No, no, no I got really? away with it. I mean, this is like jealous making because we went away for a, you know, to go down the beach for a picnic. And when I came back about a half hour later, because I forgot my fork or something, the entire barn was in flames. So did you get in big trouble for that? I, I got in, you know, a lot of trouble, but not, not legal trouble. The police did interview me, and they were going to send me to juvenile court, but they did not. And it was mostly my father. I had he had said, take all the matches out of your pocket before you go to the barn. And I said, I don't have. I lied to him. And in the working class world, that's, you know anathema so his silence was enough to punish me really i couldn't go to it was a one summer i was going to go to camp and i didn't go to camp that was my punishment sounds like you had your own camp going on <laughs> my own camp. <laughs> and then all at once did you have this vision of this kind of choreography movement thing no not at the not at that time i i mostly trained as a cunningham dancer and in the middle of some of the performances I would do with my cohorts, I would think, well, what does fourth position mean? Why am I doing a round de jambe? Why am I in relevé with a passe? And I started to feel as if I was lying. And so I just made a list of everything I would never do again. You know, never do an arabesque, never do a passe, don't step, step, leap. And started to decide that real movement had to be causal and utilitarian. So I picked up objects right away. But it was a really slow journey from my first full evening show, 1981 to now. It wasn't a eureka moment where you said, I'm going to do this from now on. No, I was really more like a pebble pusher, like an anteater with its nose in the dirt pushing this little pebble to the next spot. You talk I in the book about making a real move. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I still struggle with it because I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm seeking that. It's sort of my ho holy grail, but I know it when I see it. I know that a real move is something you get hurt trying to stop. I know that a real move is something that you can't make a volitional decision about once you're in the middle of it. Like falling is a really good example of a real move because of the fact that, you know, once you let go, there's really nothing you can do to amend it until you're, you're crashed. One of the things you do, and the, the, the your actioneers, dancers do in this performance is go on increasingly... Uh, to increasingly greater heights and and essentially fall forwards or backwards onto not that soft looking of a mat <laughs> uh, from 10, 20, I guess 30 feet maybe uh, eventually. We think we can go even higher than 30 feet. Could it be 40? Probably. And could it be 50? I mean, we're thinking of jumping off the roof out here. But then the question is, there probably is a distance that would be too far to fall on a one-foot mat. And my curiosity is how close can we come to that? What is the experience? What is, the, is, what is I guess, the pleasure in letting gravity have its way with you like that? 
When you're falling like that, you feel a sensation that's indescribable, and I don't think we have a vocabulary for it yet. It feels as if you have been let... It, it feels as if you have been released from the confines of this earth. It feels as if, really, there's, in terms of superhero, nothing you can't do. You know, when you walk around the next day, you feel, well, you know, I fell from 30 feet. What, what have you done? Do you ever think about superheroism and what superpowers you would wish to have? Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly would like to fly, but not without the hard hits. I like, I like the flight, but I also like the failure of flight. I like the drama of crashes. And I love the rhythms that they provoke in both me and people who witness them and what, what that means to them, what it reminds them of. What, why? I mean, if I could fly, as I, of course, have in my dreams many times, I land beautifully and softly. And uh, Whereas you, you would like to like feel the impact. What, why is that? I want to feel everything a human has ever felt in terms of physical intensities on a Richter scale that's off the chart before I die. I want to know who has felt the most intense physical feeling. There, there's some way, there's, I guess, no measure to quantify that. But my, my obsession is, could I handle that degree of physical intensity? And if I could, I mean, my notion of my last moment on Earth would be that I've, I'm so used up that at that last breath I just burst into dust, that that would be a responsible and, and reasonable way to exit the earth, that I can no longer be physical because nothing holds together anymore. And I think that falling has, is, is a beautiful metaphor to figure out. Um, there's a moment at which you would have gone too high and you would have landed too hard for the physical body to be able to survive it. Um, obviously, I want to come back from that edge and do it again and again, and I want my dancers to as well. But I think to put on a theatrical physical event, that question has to be poked at a little bit, and it has to, on some level, be answered. These young, recently former dancers, how, how do their fellow traditional dancers regard what they do? Are they, is that difficult? I hear every so often, I mean, even a critic will say, that's not dance, you know, they're violent, she's a masochist, she's a sadist. Sometimes I will hear things like that. But I think the dancers are great ambassadors for a new way to approach what physicality and the presentation of the drama of action might end up being in 10 or 20 years. And I might be wrong. I could be wrong. These ideas might not work. But um, if they work, then I think we'll have a whole new field that could be action art. Sometimes I think, what if dance is something you want to do, not watch? And what if that's why modern dance is having such a difficult time? It's not just a spectator event. It is not. No, I, I don't believe it is. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's so much faster. Hang on, everybody. Nice. He's off. Jackie, hang on, all right? I hung out with Elizabeth Streb in 2010, and you can see a video of a bit of my attempt at extreme action heroism at Studio360.org. And if you think you're more heroic than I am, which is a very low bar, Elizabeth Streb's company is holding open auditions on January 29th and 30th at the Streb Lab for Action Mechanics in Brooklyn. Coming up... 
Celia Cruz with her incredible flamboyant costumes, her three-inch nails, flashy smile, her warmth. How Celia Cruz got the world to dance. She was an energy master. She would sing, and the whole vibration of the room would just be raised. La rumba me está llamando. Bongo, dile que ya voy. The Sounds of Salsa. That's coming up on Studio 360. Studio 360. On this episode of Studio 360, a few years ago, the choreographer Jody Oberfelder staged an immersive piece called Four Chambers, in which audience members were taken on a metaphorical trip through the four chambers of the heart. And it wasn't entirely metaphorical and romantic. In fact, it got Studio 360's former producer Julie Burstein thinking about CPR. When was the last time you felt another person's beating heart? Perhaps you placed your hand on the back of your sleeping child and felt the rhythm through his slender ribs. Or you were pressed against your lover so close you felt both your hearts throbbing. What about your own heart? Have you missed the pulse it tattoos through your body every moment? We're a major percussive instrument. <laughs> Choreographer Jody Oberfelder wants you to pay attention. Trying to get one human being to go inside another human being's encasement, to give them an experience of what's inside their body. In Jody Oberfelder's Four Chambers, one of her dancers will look into your eyes, take your hand, and pull you into the piece. Will you come with me? Each of us becomes part of the dance, and for a non-dancer, someone like me who lives mostly in her head, the experience can be unsettling. I thought I was going to watch a dance, not be in one. I love it when people come in and they're really resistant and you see the dancers crack their code. You can't like be all over them and start to climb them like a tree, they'll freak. So the directive there is, you know, ease into it, go slow. Don't sneak up from behind. <laughs> Put your shoulder next to them. Just let a very soft touch happen first because then they'll see, oh, it's just skin. My guide through Four Chambers was a young woman named Mercedes Searer. After gliding across the wooden floor with her for a few minutes, she took my hand and placed it on her chest, above her heart. And then she placed her hand on my heart. It's um, in some ways a lot more intimate than actual romantic intimacy that you have um, to, to really think about the organs or have someone really feel like physically see and feel the changes that are happening throughout this piece. We all have that ability to touch someone and to um, heal. I had invited Holly Anderson to go to the performance with me. She's a cardiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. I think um, human intimacy and touch is really important, and I know as a physician I do it all the time with people. In fact, I become acutely aware that sometimes I'm the only person that this person touches. In a way, Holly Anderson is responsible for four chambers. 
In a conversation with Jody Oberfelder, Holly said that she tells all of her cardiology patients to dance. Dancing is the best exercise. And you don't have to go to a dance class. I mean, what's great about dancing is it's to music. It's fun. It takes posture. It takes aerobic activity. It takes, you know, if you're really doing a dance, it takes memory. And if you're doing it with other people, they're social skills. You know, I think it's the perfect activity for your heart. For this run of four chambers, Jody Oberfelder and her team of dancers and designers transformed the basement of an old hospital in Brooklyn into a mysterious series of performance spaces. In the first and last rooms, we danced. In other rooms, we watched videos about the heart, or we were hooked up to pulse oximeters. These registered the changes in our breath and heartbeat when a persistent man on a video asked us questions. What is your greatest fear? After our interrogation, Mercedes parted a scrim of red fabric, and we entered a room draped entirely in scarlet. There was one room that was just way too creepy. I mean, this used to be a hospital, and this was the room where they washed down the bodies and packaged them up. And the dancers were at first, um, I don't think we can use this room. You see that drain pipe right there? Like, we could trip on that. So we built a floor over the drain pipes, and we've treated the walls so that they're not hard green tile anymore. Um, They're actually just the opposite, but the ghosts of that room are still in there. This is where Four Chambers suddenly became intense. When people say they have their finger on the pulse of something, they are in the know. Nothing happens. Heartbeat. They run, slam into a wall. Then they cross the space, quickly running, slamming into another wall. Then again, a third time, barely missing each other, slamming back out into the space with the audience members. I begin looking down at my chest and digging, pulling the skin apart at the breastbone digging my fingernails in as though I'm trying to get past the bone into my chest. Some dancers are pressed against their audience members. Others are standing on their own, pressing their hand in. I reach in, trying to get to my heart. I imagine that I'm digging through the viscera trying to get to my heart. I imagine that I've found it. My arm is gripping, my hand is gripping it. And as the violin comes up, we begin to squeeze the organ as though we're trying to restart it. And drop to the ground. Just for a moment, dancers bounce back up looking up at their audience members, and then collapse once, twice, third time, feet slamming. We call that section the CPR section, where uh, the movement is violent, actually. CPR is really violent. Um, This was actually, um, we call that the ish phrase. That's choreographer Ishmael Houston-Jones, who tells the story of his own heart attack on one of the videos. And the doctor said, oh, the right side is completely blocked and there's been some heart damage. And we're going to have to operate tomorrow and give you a bypass and explain what a bypass was. 
the nurse came in and prayed for me, which made me a little uneasy. Uh, when I got down to the operating room, the other nurse asked me if I wanted to walk, which I did, and we walked in arm in arm. It was shocking to have somebody my age just suddenly have a blocked heart. Four Chambers doesn't end here in this scarlet room with a heart attack taking place on the floor. The dancers rise and continue to dance with us until they send us out the door. There's places to reflect on what is a life, and I think that's where I am in my life right now. It's not going to last forever. The heart is an apt metaphor for what keeps you alive and an apt metaphor, I think, for all emotions, even though the heart doesn't think. It definitely registers what you're thinking and feeling. We all know the things we're supposed to do to take care of our hearts. But Four Chambers made me feel them with a different sense of urgency. After the performance, I even signed up for a class in CPR. What this piece does, what art knows how to do perhaps more powerfully than science, is to enable us to feel our hearts, their power and their fragility. I put two hands on her chest. I start to back up from her, looking at her. Slowly, music drops out. I drop out. Jody Oberfelder's Four Chambers was performed in New York in 2013 and 2014, part one of a dance trilogy about the body, followed by the brain piece. The final installment, this May, is called Madame Overy and features music by the composer Missy Mazzoli, who was here recently talking about her homesteading opera. Julie Burstein produced our story about the heart piece with help from another Studio 360 alumnus, Josh Rogerson. Dance is hard, almost impossible, to separate from what the dancers are dancing to. And no musician focused more on making regular people move than the late Celia Cruz. Cruz had been a star singer in Cuba in the 1950s. When the revolution happened, she happened to be in the U.S. and stayed. She joined the New Yorican Tito Puente's famous band. But a decade and a half later, middle age, kind of a career slump happening, she teamed up with one of her biggest fans, Johnny Pacheco, an ex-band leader and co-founder of a new Latin record label called Fania. Together, they released the album Celia and Johnny in 1974. It was a hit and really helped introduce salsa music to millions of Americans. To tell the story of Celia and Johnny, we've got a music professor. My name is Marisol Berrios Miranda, and I am a professor of music, ethnomusicology, and Latin American studies. We've also got Celia Cruz's biographer. My name is Ana Cristina Raimundo and I am the co-author of a book called Celia, My Life, an Autobiography with Celia Cruz. And Johnny himself. My name is Johnny Pacheco. I'm a musician. I'm a band leader. I was a lousy violin player, but I was very well known as a percussionist. I always wanted to start my own company because I had ideas different from what was going on. 
if it was not for Fania Records, we would not be talking about all of this delicious, rich music. Fania Records began in the 60s. Johnny started recording Latin artists in New York. I always wanted to record Celia. I never worked with anybody so talented. She sang like nobody sang before. Celia Cruz, with her incredible flamboyant costumes, her three-inch nails, her flashy smile, her warmth, she was an energy master. She would sing and the whole vibration of the room would just be raised. La rumba me está llamando. Bongo, dile que ya voy. To me, was a dream come true, playing with Celia and recording Celia. We became like family. Celia and Johnny is such an important record because it was something that he did for her. He wanted to highlight her voice and her extraordinary ability to express emotion. When you start listening to Kimbara, you cannot stay still. You had to dance. When I am dancing and I hear Celia shouting azúcar, the energy goes even one more notch up. I remember when she walked into the studio, she used to say to us, azúcar, sugar. That's an expression of sweetness. We have a saying in Spanish, and that is, traía la música por dentro, she had the music within her. Celia was born in Cuba where music and rhythm is like the air that you breathe. Cuba is always been very, very important in the salsa Afro-Cuban continuum. Salsa is the music from Cuba in New York. The term means sauce, salsa, sauce. There was always this debate between Tito and Johnny, and Tito would say, Johnny, pero que la salsa se come, no se toca. We eat salsa. We don't dance it. We don't play it. And then Johnny would laugh, and he would say, Tito, the kids don't know that. The generation of today thinks of guaracha, guaguancó, mambo, all of this as their grandparents and their parents' music. So what I did was we put the music on the one roof and called it salsa. It was a really, I think, a truly brilliant marketing strategy to repackage these amazing, beloved rhythms that were completely familiar to the people. I'll never forget the look on people's faces when we performed. The guys from the Bronx playing salsa. One of the most beautiful things about salsa and that new way of arranging sones and guarachas and mambos and bombas, 
all of that make that music very, very inclusive. When I was rehearsing with the band, I saw that there were Dominicans. Johnny's from Dominican Republic, you know. Cuban, Puerto Rican, and two Jewish fellows. So we have a combination of different nationalities. And when you make a sauce, you have different ingredients. And when I saw the band in the stage, I said, this is what we got. We got salsa. That was Johnny Pacheco talking about his 1974 album, Celia and Johnny. It became part of the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry five years ago. We also heard from Ana Cristina Raimundo and Marisol Berrios Miranda. Our story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. People sat through it and they had a hard time. This show is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. I remember seeing this painting in my grandparents' bathroom. Next time on Studio 360. It was of a naked little girl sitting on a pot holding a flower. Jessica Campbell, a young artist who works in many mediums, including carpet. I remember looking at it and thinking, I want to make beautiful things like this when I grow up. Serious art that dares to be amusing. Next time on Studio 360.